Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When a once independent 24-year-old had a sudden change in personality, her friends and family knew something's wrong. But they never could have imagined that she would simply vanish into thin air. This is the Case Remains podcast, episode 40, The Disappearance of Marilyn Bergeron. Marilyn Bergeron was born on December 21st, 1983, to parents Michelle and Andre. For much of the first 14 years of her life, the Bergerons lived in Chicoutimi, a borough in the city of Saguenay, Quebec. After that, they settled in Haute-Saint-Charles in Quebec City, just over two hours' drive away. Marilyn also had a sister, Natalie, who was five and a half years older, and the two were very close. As a child, Marilyn showed herself to be a highly creative individual with a real flair for music. She took music lessons from the age of ten and was particularly fond of the guitar, forming her own group when she reached secondary school. She composed music, wrote poems, and loved the theatre and the arts. She was described by her parents as a kind and open-minded girl who was fascinated by different cultures. Growing up in Quebec, she was fluent in both English and French, spoke some Spanish, and had also begun to learn Russian. She loved to travel and was always generous with her time and eager to get to know people. As a teenager, Marilyn went through a bit of a rocky patch where she was drinking a lot and exhibiting reckless behaviour. A friend would later describe how Marilyn had some suicidal thoughts during this period, though fortunately she never acted on them, and in time things seemed to improve. After school... Marilyn attended a pre-university college in Saguenay, where she studied media art and technology, before eventually moving to Montreal in 2005. There, Marilyn worked at Steve's Music Store, alongside some jobs in television production. As with many young people, she was not entirely sure what she wanted to do for her career. At that time, she was taking a course in finance, but had also expressed an interest in becoming a flight attendant. She hoped to eventually move to Vancouver and experience everything that the multicultural city had to offer. But it was towards the end of her three-year stint in Montreal that Marilyn's friends and family started to notice a change in the then 24-year-old woman. Once sociable, trusting and full of life, Marilyn had become quiet and reserved, a shadow of her former self. By that time, her sister Natalie lived in California, and in October of 2007, she'd gone to visit Marilyn in Montreal. This was a fairly regular occurrence for the two sisters, 
who remained close in spite of the distance between them. When Natalie visited, they would go out for dinner and to concerts and would catch up on one another's busy lives. It was during that visit that Natalie got the first inkling that something wasn't right with her sister, though she knew better than to push her for information. Natalie knew that Marilyn was the kind of person to share things in her own time. In December, when the Bergerons gathered for Christmas, Marilyn was still feeling down and spent much of the festive period in tears. Photos from the occasion show a forlorn-looking Marilyn amongst her smiling family. But again, no one could get her to say what was wrong. It was Sunday, February 10th of 2008, when Marilyn called home in a panic, telling her mother that she was too scared to stay in Montreal and that she wanted to leave everything behind her. She packed a bag, caught the first bus to Quebec City and arrived at her parents' house that same day. Though her family tried to talk to her, Marilyn gave nothing away. They asked if she was having money problems, having issues with a boyfriend or had got involved with drugs, but Marilyn wouldn't say anything. Eventually, Andre asked her daughter if she had been attacked. Marilyn gave her what she described as a look of despair before bursting into tears. Concerned about the drastic change in her daughter, Andre arranged for Marilyn to see a psychiatrist, telling her that even if she didn't want to confide in her family, she had to talk to someone. Marilyn agreed and attended the session, and then resigned from her job in Montreal, telling her boss that she needed at least a month off to rest. A couple of days later, Marilyn and her parents went back to Montreal to pack up the rest of her things and take them back to Quebec City. By Saturday the 16th of February, the move was complete, and the very next day, Marilyn disappeared. Andre remembers that day as having unusually good weather, like a beautiful spring day instead of the middle of a Canadian winter. It was around 10.45 in the morning when Marilyn told her parents that she was going for a walk to clear her head and would be back in a few hours. Andre was understandably worried about Marilyn and told her daughter that she would come with her. But Marilyn said that she'd prefer to walk alone. Andre didn't want her to go, but at 24 years old, what could she do? And so she gave Marilyn a hug and told her she trusted her, kissed her on the forehead and said goodbye. It was the last time she would ever see her daughter. With no sign of Marilyn by mid-afternoon, Andre and Michelle began to worry. Not wanting to jump to conclusions, at first they assumed that she'd just gone to a friend's house or maybe even met someone when she was out on her walk. But the following day, when Marilyn still hadn't returned, her parents contacted the Quebec police to report her missing. After tracking her credit card, police discovered that Marilyn had tried unsuccessfully to withdraw $60 from an ATM the morning she disappeared. 
The ATM was located in Laurentville, only around a mile away from her parents' home. A security camera had captured her there at nine minutes past eleven, less than half an hour after she'd left for her walk. The timing suggests that she'd headed straight there on foot. Though she had the funds in her account, for some reason she was unable to get the money. The credit card was not one she used regularly. Marilyn's father had given it to her in case of emergencies or if she was having money trouble, and her family believes that she'd probably forgotten the pin. The credit card Marilyn tried to use was the only form of payment she had on her. After she'd left for her walk, Marilyn's mother noticed that she'd left her handbag as well as her brand new pack of cigarettes by the door. Police gathered security footage from the bank, where they were able to find Marilyn on camera trying to withdraw the money. Though at first, they withheld the footage from Marilyn's family because of what they deemed to be its distressing nature. In the footage, you can see Marilyn stood at the ATM. She repeatedly turns her head to the left, where there is a large window that looks directly out onto the street. She appears nervous and on edge, her left hand clinging to the rail to the side of the ATM. And there was something else strange about the footage. When Marilyn had left her parents' home, she'd been wearing a long black coat with a faux fur hood, grey velour trousers and black boots. In the video, she's wearing the same outfit, but with one significant addition. She's wearing a black backpack that she didn't have on her when she left the house. Marilyn's next known movements were again traced through the use of her credit card, leaving a five-hour window of time unaccounted for. At three minutes past four in the afternoon, Marilyn used her credit card to buy a $3 coffee from Café de Pau in saint Ramon. This location is 13 miles from Lauretteville, where Marilyn was seen on the security camera earlier in the day. While it is possible that she had walked there in the five hours that followed, her family believe that she may have got a lift from someone. The location of the cafe is a strange area to reach on foot, not only because of the large distance that Marilyn would have to cover, but also the busy main roads that she would have to take to get there. The cafe, which is no longer open, was situated just off a busy junction, surrounded by nothing other than large chain retail stores. It's the kind of place you might drive to on a weekend to make a particular purchase before heading home. Marilyn's family could think of no feasible explanation as to why she would have travelled to that area. Andre and Natalie visited the cafe to see if they could get any more information. The cashier, noting the resemblance between Natalie and her sister, remembered seeing Marilyn that day. He recalled that Marilyn had seemed depressed and appeared to be in a rush to leave the coffee shop. There has been no activity on Marilyn's credit card ever since. As far as the police were concerned, however, there was no evidence of a crime. 
To them, the most likely explanation of events was that Marilyn had disappeared of her own volition and then committed suicide. But Marilyn's family remain convinced that is not the case. They don't think that Marilyn would have tried to withdraw money and then go and buy a coffee if she'd planned on killing herself. And so Marilyn's family thought back to their last conversations with her, combing their memories for any clues that might tell them where she was. Natalie remembered that the last time she'd spoken to Marilyn, she had asked her sister if there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Though it seemed a strange question, Natalie didn't get the impression that Marilyn was suicidal. Instead, she thought that Marilyn knew she was about to experience something unpleasant and needed some reassurance from her older sister. They also spoke to the psychiatrist that Marilyn had seen just before she vanished, who said that while it was obvious that Marilyn was distressed, she told her nothing to indicate that she was in trouble or planning to disappear. Within the first two weeks of Marilyn's disappearance, the Bergerons had sought help from Pierre-Hugues Boisvenu. Pierre-Hugues knew all too well the pain and the struggle that the Bergerons were facing. His 27-year-old daughter Julie was kidnapped in 2002 after a night celebrating her promotion at work. A week later, Julie's body was found in a ditch. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten and strangled to death. That same year, a man named Hugo Bernier was charged with her murder and sentenced to life in prison. But for Pierre Hugues, the tragedy didn't end there. And in 2005, his second daughter Isabel tragically died in a car accident. Following Julie's murder, Pierre Hugues became an outspoken victims' rights advocate, founding the Murdered or Missing Persons Families Association along with three other Canadian fathers. Later, in 2010, he would be appointed Senator of La Salle, Quebec, a position which he still holds to this day. Unfortunately, the facts of Julie Boisvenu's murder meant that Pierre Hugues was not overly confident in the authorities' ability to locate missing persons. Just hours before Hugo Bernier murdered Julie, he had two encounters with the police. In the first, he'd aroused suspicion by hiding behind the steering wheel of his car. He told officers he had no ID and was waiting for a man named Hugo Bernier, the owner of the vehicle. Had police looked into it further, they would have discovered that he was a known sex offender who was in breach of his probation stemming from a charge of sexual assault. The second encounter... Mere minutes before Julie Boisvenu left the hotel bar she'd been drinking at, Bernier was again found acting suspiciously in a parking lot. After checking the car he was in wasn't stolen, the police simply left the scene. And so, when Marilyn Bergeron went missing, Pierre Hugues advised her family to take some action of their own. Each member of the family took on a role, with André communicating with the media, Michel on the ground organising searches of his own, and Natalie acting as a link between the Montreal police and the USA where she lives. On March the 1st, just a couple of weeks after Marilyn was last seen, 
The family arranged an event that spanned more than 20 cities across Canada. At 1pm, organised search groups in each location looked for Marilyn for a full 24 hours. Along with the search parties, volunteers were encouraged to put up missing persons posters, hand out flyers and talk to the residents of the city for any clues to Marilyn's whereabouts. By the time the event ended, thousands of posters had been distributed across the country, with thousands more emails sent through student networks and posts shared through Facebook, blogs and company websites. But despite the huge effort put forward by Marilyn's family and the groups of volunteers, no one came forward with any new information. Today, when someone disappears in Canada... Police procedure is to conduct a search of the 300 metre radius from where they were last seen. Statistics have shown that this leads to a much higher chance of the person being found. But unfortunately, when Marilyn disappeared in 2008, no such procedure was in place. Instead, Marilyn's father Michel again arranged his own search of the area around Café de Pau. By August of 2008, Pierre-Hugues Boisvenu had arranged for his missing persons association, the MMPFA, to meet with the Quebec City Police Department. The meeting, also attended by Marilyn's parents, was to review the handling of Marilyn's case. Though they later said that the Quebec police had done their best, the Bergerons were frustrated by their refusal to look at Marilyn's disappearance as a potential criminal case. Instead, with no evidence of a crime, the police stood by their theory that Marilyn had likely committed suicide. In the years that followed, the Bergerons made numerous requests for the case to be transferred to the jurisdiction of the Sûreté de Québec, or SQ, known as one of the most capable law enforcement agencies in the province. They also requested a transfer to Montreal Police, who they believe would be better equipped to investigate anything going on in Marilyn's life around the time she disappeared. Despite several requests, including a personal appeal to the Canadian Prime Minister, the Bergerons were knocked back time and time again. In 2010, there was some movement in the case when Marilyn's disappearance was featured on a TV show by Canadian crime reporter Claude Poirier. Following the broadcast, an anonymous tip was called in by a man, saying he'd seen Marilyn in Hawkesbury, a town in eastern Ontario around a three-and-a-half-hour drive away from her last known location. He said that he'd seen her not just once, but on a regular basis, for at least a year prior to his call. He believed that she had lived there and said that she was usually in the company of a young man. The police began to investigate the tip and the Bergerons headed straight to Hawkesbury to see what information they could find. After showing Marilyn's photo around, they were able to find 36 other people who said they recognised her from the area. Three anonymous callers said that it didn't look as though she was there of her own free will. But unfortunately, despite further investigation, police were not able to confirm that Marilyn was ever in Hawkesbury for sure. 
Over the coming years, Andre compiled pages and pages of reports, noting any and all action the police had taken in regards to the investigation, while the family continued with their own efforts to try and find Marilyn. They engaged with homeless communities, handed out flyers around cities in bars and strip clubs, and maintained a website, findmarilyn.com. But with little evidence to go on, it wasn't long before the case went cold. In 2016, eight years after Marilyn's disappearance, the Bergerons acquired the services of Mark Belmar, a lawyer and politician based in Quebec. Belmar was instrumental in drawing more attention to Marilyn's case. That same year, she became the first Canadian citizen to be entered onto the NAMIS registry, a database created by the United States Department of Justice of missing, unidentified and unclaimed persons. On Marilyn's entry, she is stated as having links to California, which is where her sister Natalie still lives. It was also around this time that the reward money for information in regards to Marilyn's whereabouts was increased from 10,000 Canadian dollars to 30,000, and a tip line was set up for anyone who had perhaps had information but didn't want to contact the police. Once in place, 43 reported sightings of Marilyn were called into the tip line within the first nine months. To mark the 10-year anniversary of Marilyn's disappearance, a press conference was held by the family, along with a friend of Marilyn's, Jonathan Gauthier. Jonathan said that Marilyn had changed shortly before her disappearance. On December 10th, he had met her at her apartment so they could go to a party, and he was immediately struck by her downcast demeanour. At the party, instead of her usual upbeat and sociable self, Marilyn seemed upset. After having a conversation with a friend, she appeared anxious and asked Jonathan if they could leave. When they got back to his flat, Jonathan tried to get to the bottom of what was bothering her. He remembered Marilyn crying and telling him that something had happened, but wouldn't say what it was. She couldn't tell me wouldn't tell me, Jonathan said at the press conference. I asked her whether she had been raped or something like that, and all of her answers were, no, it's worse, it's worse. When Jonathan asked her if she had witnessed a murder, she again replied, no, it's worse. You just can't imagine what happened. Jonathan persisted and tried to talk to Marilyn for the next few hours, but still she said nothing and Jonathan got the impression that she was trying to protect him. Sadly, to this day, no one knows what from. A few days before Marilyn disappeared more than 12 years ago, her sister Natalie told her that there was always light at the end of the tunnel. Today, she still believes that to be true. Those statistics say that Marilyn is no longer walking this earth, Natalie and her parents still have hope. And still, every year at Christmas time, they put Marilyn's present under the tree. So it will be there, ready and waiting for her, when she gets home. 
Thank you for listening to episode 40 of the Case Remains podcast. As always, if you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us over on Twitter and Instagram with the handle Case Remains, or you can go to caseremains.com, where you'll find write-ups on missing persons cases and unsolved mysteries. Until next time, stay safe.